Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll. I'm BJ. So, I was watching this limited series on the Peacock app called The Resort, created by Andy Sierra, who wrote the Time Warp film Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. Milioti is also in The Resort. And I liked Palm Springs a lot. The Resort, not so much. So the basic premise of the show is, quote, an anniversary trip puts a marriage to the test when a couple finds themselves embroiled in one of Yucatan's most bizarre unsolved mysteries from 15 years prior, involving the disappearance of two young adults, a murder, and a once-in-a-century hurricane. With everything connected, solving the crime requires unraveling some of life's biggest questions. So yeah, I can't say I recommend watching the resort, but it was worth it for me because while I was watching, I heard this song, a folky song with great harmony vocals. I think it was near the beginning of one of the episodes and I really liked it. So I googled some of the lyrics that I was hearing and I discovered that it was a song by Brewer and Shipley. Shipley, of course, are most famous for the ridiculous oddball hit One Toke Over the Line. One toke, man. One toke over the line. Now down at a railway station. One toke over the line. I've investigated many, many artists over the years. Used to buy records for a dollar in the 90s just to check things out. You know, I was buying records by bands that I ended up really not liking at all, like Poco, for example, but I would just buy stuff to hear it, like Garland Jeffries, and end up not liking it. But they were a buck, and before the internet, that was really the only way to check a lot of stuff out. But I never bothered checking out Brewer and Shipley. I was just never curious enough to delve into the catalog based on one toke over the line that did not inspire me to dig any deeper. I certainly flipped past their records a thousand times since the 90s, and I just wasn't intrigued enough to check them out. But then I heard this song in the year 2022, more than 50 years after it was released, and I realized I needed to check out Brewer and Shipley because this song, People Who Love Each Other, is great. Then I thought, well, if I'm going to delve into the Brewer and Shipley catalog, why not do a podcast episode? So here we are. 
Thomas Shipley was born on April 1, 1941 in Mineral Ridge, Ohio. He played trumpet in high school, but turned it in for a guitar after hearing Pete Seeger and falling in love with folk music of the time. While in college, Tom played open mic nights at various beatnik coffeehouses, and after college, he hit the road and played the American folk circuit, including venues in Canada. Michael Brewer was born April 14, 1944, in Oklahoma City. The oldest of four children, he performed on the radio at the ripe age of four. He was a singing drummer in a rock and roll band in high school, but in 1960, he sold his drums and bought his first guitar, a Martin D-18. After graduating from high school in 1962, he traveled the same folk circuit as Tom Shipley, performing in coffeehouses from coast to coast, and Michael Brewer started writing his own songs. So he met Tom Shipley in 1964 at the Blind Owl Coffee House in Kent, Ohio, but they would not become a team for a few more years. Brewer actually formed a different duo with a guy named Tom Mastin. They started playing together in 1965 and settled in San Francisco and then Los Angeles. They actually landed a recording contract with Columbia Records as Mastin and Brewer. They had a band. They had a drummer named Billy Mundy, who was later a member of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, and a bass player named Jim Fielder, who was later a founding member of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Mastin and Brewer toured Southern California. They opened for bands like The Birds and a newly formed band called Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield actually formed in a house next door to where Michael Brewer lived, a house that was once owned by Lenny Bruce. And Buffalo Springfield actually took their name from a roadwork vehicle that they saw parked in front of Michael Brewer's house next door. So Mastin and Brewer were headlining clubs in L.A., and recording songs for Columbia. All of a sudden, Tom Mastin decided that he just couldn't take the pressure of everything, and they split up, and sadly, years later, Tom Mastin committed suicide. So the guy that had signed Mastin and Brewer to Columbia Records was actually leaving that company to help create a new record company that was being formed by Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss to be called A&M Records. And so he took Michael with him, to AM, and Michael Brewer became a staff songwriter for AM's publishing company, Good Sam Music. Now, during this time, Tom Shipley and Michael Brewer had developed a friendship. They kept crossing paths on the folk circuit, and Tom Shipley eventually drifted to LA in 1967 to check out that emerging West Coast scene. And so he knocked on Michael Brewer's door, and then he ended up renting a house around the corner. Tom's next-door neighbor at the time was actually Jim Messina, who was in Buffalo Springfield and later of Loggins and Messina. So soon enough, Tom Shipley got hired by A&M as a staff writer as well, and he actually recorded a single with Ruth Ann Friedman under the group named The Garden Club. So Tom Shipley is splitting time writing songs with Friedman in David Crosby's basement, but he also started writing songs with his neighbor Michael Brewer. As staff songwriters for A&M, Brewer and Shipley wrote songs that were recorded by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, H.P. Lovecraft, and Bobby Rydell. But it was their demos that they recorded for the publishing company that actually started getting attention at the record label. And it was suggested that they start recording their own songs for release. And so their first album as Brewer and Shipley, so Michael Brewer had graduated from the number two name on the bill, 
in Maston and Brewer to the number one name on the bill in Brewer and Shipley. Their first album for A&M, Down in L.A., came out in 1968 and included the song Truly Right, which was the song they wrote that was recorded and released by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. So the Down in L.A. album isn't great. It includes some generic folk songs like Small Town Girl and hippie shit like Dreamin' in the Shade and Love, Love. She Thinks She's a Woman is really bad. My favorite songs from the first Brewer and Shipley album, Down in L.A., would be I Can't See Her, An Incredible State of Affairs, and Keeper of the Keys. Of all the keys, 
monkey to rule them He keeps in the great hall Under the dark tower we call Now we beat on the drum Aquarian dancers come And now the children the oracle has So A&M had brought in some really good musicians to play on the Down in L.A. album, like Jim Messina and Leon Russell. But even with a soon-to-be-released debut album and mutual friends who were starting to make it big in bands like The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and The Association, Michael and Tom really didn't like their life in Los Angeles. And so they decided to move back to the Midwest as soon as the album was finished. So by the time the album came out in October 1968... Brewer and Shipley were living in Kansas City. Tom Shipley described their decision to settle in Missouri as one of, quote, fortunate circumstance. Quote, there was a music scene built up in Kansas City, and Michael and I used to come during Christmas, and it was great. There would be clouds in the sky. You don't see clouds in L.A., just the haze. A quote from Michael Brewer, We really didn't care for L.A. very much. We had just had enough and figured there had to be a better way to make music without living there. So we left California and ended up coming back to the heartland. We ended up in Kansas City and started a management production company with some friends, Good Karma Productions. Our management went to the East Coast to shop some labels. Buddha signed us because Neil Bogart, who was the president of Buddha Records at the time, was known as the king of bubblegum. You know, 19 Dead Fruit Company and all that stuff. He was trying to shatter that image and looking for album artists. And that's what Tom and I were. We were never about singles. Every song on our albums was just as important as the next one. So Brewer and Shipley were actually signed to Kama Sutra, which was an offshoot label of Buddha Records. So Buddha was the parent company. And they released four albums in four years with Kama Sutra. Weeds, Tarkio, Shake Off the Demon, and Rural Space. So the album Weeds, their second album, came out in 1970, includes the song that inspired this episode, People Love Each Other, and a few other songs I like, especially Indian Summer and Oh Sweet Lady. Thank you. 
Now, it was Brewer and Shipley's third album, Tarkio, or Tarkeo, however you pronounce it. That was the album that included the ridiculous One Toke Over the Line. Jerry Garcia actually played steel guitar on the song, supposedly. One Toke Over the Line was a top 10 hit in 1971. So the definition of a toke is, quote, inhalation of a marijuana cigarette or pipe smoke. Eventually, toke just became slang in America for smoking a marijuana cigarette. It might have been derived from the Spanish word tocar, which meant, quote, touch, tap, or hit. So this is Michael Brewer's account of the origins of the song. Quote, One day we were pretty much stoned, and all... One day we were pretty much stoned and all, and Tom says, Man, I'm one toke over the line tonight. I like the way that sounded, and so I wrote a song around it. But it wasn't meant to be a serious song, and they used it as a warm-up tune backstage. They never really considered playing it live. It was never really meant to see the light of day. But while they were in the process of recording the album, they landed a gig opening for Melanie at Carnegie Hall. And so they were still busy arranging and finishing up the songs for the new record and weren't really ready to perform them. And they hadn't really rehearsed their old stuff enough. And so they basically ran out of material. And so when the crowd gave them an encore, when they opened for Melanie, they didn't know what to play. And one song that they could play was One Toke Over the Line. So they played that. This is the story at least. And as it happened... Neil Bogart, president of Buddha Records, parent company to Kama Sutra. And of course, Neil Bogart ended up going on to start Casablanca Records and signed Kiss. And also Casablanca was responsible for a lot of disco during the disco craze. Anyways, Neil Bogart was in the audience at Carnegie Hall. And when he heard one toke over the line, he told the guys, you got to record it. You got to put it on the album. Well... Neil Bogart was the boss, he was in charge, so they recorded it, and they put it on the album. And then, Bogart decided he wanted to release it as a single. So now, not only was it on the album, it was on the radio. Now, the song did crack the top ten, but it might have gone even higher, except that radio stations started banning the song. They were actually getting pressure from the FCC. And the irony is that the guys have always maintained that the song is actually about using moderation, hence the words over the line. Neil Bogart actually complained to Rolling Stone magazine about the FCC interference, and Ben Fong Torres ended up writing an article about the controversy for Rolling Stone. Whatever the FCC meant to do when it issued its public notice regarding the broadcast of dope lyrics, the immediate results are clear. Rock stations, AM and FM, are scared shitless. Interpreting the commission's indirectly worded notice as a warning to ban all pro-drug songs, many station managers have appointed themselves censors and are pulling dozens of songs. And... Depending on their ears and the amount of space between them, the results have been funny, not so funny, and, quite often, frightening. The first major casualty is a good example of the mentalities set loose by the FCC. 
one took over the line, a single by Brewer and Shipley that had been cleared by the trades and programming tipsters and began a steady cruise up the charts until the FCC issued its reminder, FCC's word, to broadcasters to know the meaning of songs that, quote, tend to glorify or promote the use of illegal drugs such as marijuana, LSD, speed, etc. Now, at least half a dozen top 40 stations have dropped the single because of the word toke. I frankly didn't know what toke was, said Jeff Kay, program director of WKBW in Buffalo. So we did a street survey, and 90% of the kids said it had to do with marijuana. So Kay dropped the song, along with White Rabbit, DOA by Bloodrock, Monkey Man by the Stones, and Eight Miles High, which Roger McGuinn has always maintained was a song about a plane trip to London. The blacklisted song, said Kay, went beyond the boundaries of good taste. One toke is on Buddha Records, and Neil Bogart, president of the label, sounded pained as he rolled off the list of stations banning his record. KFJZ in Fort Worth, where it was number 6, KLIF in Dallas, where it was number 18, WFUN in Miami, and WKBW in Buffalo. If airways fully belong to the people, Bogart asked, how do you justify pulling a record that's so heavily requested by the people? Tom Shipley, who wrote the song with Mike Brewer, issued a crisp statement. In this electronic age, pulling a record because of its lyrics is like the burning of books in the 30s. Brewer in Boston explained the song, which is more about waiting for a train than anything connected to dope. This is an insidious and underhanded form of censorship, said Tracy Weston, a former administrative aide to the FCC Commissioner Nicholas Johnson, the only dissenter in the issuance of the notice, because the FCC has not had the guts to come out and say what they really mean. They are trying to scare private stations into doing the censorship themselves and avoid the rap. Elsewhere, most broadcasters said they'd been following anti-hard drug lines before the FCC notice and that they neither needed nor welcomed the reminder. In New York, novelist Jerome Weedman, president of the Authors League of America, wrote the FCC on behalf of lyricists, publishers, and record companies, and lyrics that, quote, are fully entitled to the protection of the First Amendment. The song took Brewer and Shipley on quite a roller coaster ride in 1971. President Richard Nixon labeled Brewer and Shipley, quote, public miscreants, not to be outdone, corrupt Vice President Spiru Agnew, soon to be disgraced, declared them on national TV to be subversive to American youth. He called the song blatant drug culture propaganda that threatened to, quote, sap our national strength. Good evening. At five minutes after two this afternoon, Vice President Agnew resigned. His one-sentence letter of resignation to the Secretary of State made Agnew the second man in history to quit the nation's second-highest office, but the first to do so under a cloud of scandal. Outside the federal courthouse in Baltimore, Agnew gave his reasons. I believe it would be against the national interest have a brutalizing effect on my family to go through a long two-year struggle concerning this matter. You also may be aware 
what I said in open court, that I categorically and flatly deny the assertions that have been made by the prosecutors with regard to their contentions of bribery and extortion on my part. The song actually reportedly earned the duo a place on the infamous Richard Nixon's enemies list, which Mike Brewer calls a badge of honor. Of course, in the very early 70s, not everyone knew what the word toke meant. This is how the song ended up being performed on the extremely tame Lawrence Welk show. After the performance, Welk called it a modern spiritual. Thank you very much. Now, here's an attractive couple, Gail Farrell from Durand, Oklahoma, Dick Dale from Algona, Iowa. Excuse me. Let's listen to Gail and Dale and one of the newer songs. Sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary, hoping that the train is on time. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Who do you love? I hope it's me. Been changing as you can plainly see. I felt the joy and I learned about the pain that my mama said. If I should choose to make a part of me, would surely strike me dead. And now I'm one toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary, hoping that the train is on time. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. One toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Don't you know that we're waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary? Hoping that the train is on time Sitting downtown in a railway station One toke over the line Don't you know that we're a Sitting downtown in a railway station One toke, one toke over the line And there you heard A Modern Spiritual by Gale and Dale Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. One Took Over the Line is, I guess, catchy, but it's also ridiculous, and I can't imagine seriously listening to it at this point, but there are some good songs on the Tarkeo album. My favorites would be The Light, Can't Go Home, and Seems Like a Long Time, written by Theodore Anderson and covered by Rod Stewart for his breakout album, Every Picture Tells a Story. The light within me shineth, the life within me flows. I'll sing a song of the kingdom, and hope the spirit It was a heavy load He wrapped it all in color But left the binding free For those who felt the hunger And 
Brewer and Shipley's fourth album, Shake Off the Demon, was released by Buddha in 1971 and is probably my favorite album by Brewer and Shipley. The title track is really great. And I also like Message from the Mission and When Everybody Comes Home. We'll 
The guys released one more album with Kama Sutra or Buddha in 1972 called Rural Space. My picks would be When the Truth Finally Comes and Crested Butte.
So after this, the guys moved on to a deal with Capitol Records, and in 1974, they came out with an album called ST11261, produced by John Boylan, who would soon earn a co-production credit on the debut Boston album. Brewer and Shipley had produced themselves for the last couple of albums. This album isn't great, but I do like the song Look Up, Look Out a lot, and How Are You is also a good one.
The last Brewer and Shipley album of the classic era, Welcome to Riddle Bridge, was released by Capitol in 1975. So even though they didn't put out any more records, Brewer and Shipley continued playing together for about five more years. But in 1980, after more than a decade of writing, recording, traveling, and performing, they amicably parted ways. A quote from Michael Brewer, There was no big breakup. We'd been on the road for too many years. It almost killed us. We were burned out, Tom Shipley agreed. So Michael Brewer continued to make music. He recorded a solo album for Dan Fogelberg's Full Moon Records in 1983 called Beauty Lies. Tom Shipley started working as a television producer and director and eventually formed his own production company, which he named after the one toke over the line album, Tarkeo Communications. Shipley later founded the Oral History of the Ozarks Project, a nonprofit organization that produces documentaries about life in the Missouri Ozarks. In 1987, at the request of a Kansas City radio station, Brewer and Shipley reunited for a concert to celebrate the station's first birthday and were overwhelmed when they walked out on stage to 10,000 cheering fans welcoming their return. So they started writing together again, and their first project was the soundtrack for one of Tom's documentaries, Treehouse, an Ozark Story. Since reuniting in 1987, Brewer and Shipley have released two more albums, Shanghai and Heartland. They continue to perform live as a duo. Shipley was the manager of the video department at the Missouri University of Science and Technology until he retired. Michael Brewer continues to write songs and has released three more solo albums. And of course, People Love Each Other was recently featured in The Resort on Peacock, which inspired my fandom and this episode. So, the music lives on. 
Now, you mixed in some wonderful circles in the 60s and 70s. The list of names that, that played on your albums and, and who you shared the stage with is quite impressive. You, you must look on, on that with, with pride. Yes, I do. Uh, I'm sure Tom does, too. Well, you know, you can't, you can't be a, a, a working musician traveling all the time, pretty much, and performing and uh, and not run into a lot of other people, you know, and share stages with a whole lot of other people, you know, one way or the other. So yeah, we've been uh, we've been very blessed. We've we've gotten to share the stage with a lot of people performing. We've also uh, been blessed with having a lot of excellent musicians uh, contribute to our albums. So uh, yeah, we've been very fortunate. I think back on that quite fondly. Any standout memories there with with um, with some particular names? Oh, gosh, it would be hard <laughs> after 35 years of it. You know, it's kind of hard to, to pick and choose the best ones. Sometimes the the, the smallest ones are, are the ones that stand out, you know, I mean, as opposed to a 20,000-seat stadium or something, yeah. although there are a few of those also. Uh, but the thing that blows my mind is way back when, some of the people we shared stages with, they opened for us before they were superstars. I mean, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen opened for us. Linda Ronstadt opened for us. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 pretty. Billy Joel opened for us. So that's kind of funny to me. Did make quite a, quite a name for yourself, uh, supporting uh, some some major names. Was it difficult at times in in those support act type situations to win the attention of the audience who were there to see the main attraction, so to speak? With us being the supporting act? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one, well, many times, but one in particular comes to mind. We we did a 28-city tour in 28 nights, opening for Jethro Tull uh, when their Passion Play album it was just coming out. And as you probably know, Jethro Tull is very theatrical. There's a whole lot to their show. Well, they, we were playing, you know, 20,000-seat arenas, and... Uh, Nothing was working right at all with their show. I mean, they had to go back to doing their thick as a brick show and stuff because none of their special effects <laughs> were working. It was it was a fiasco. But the thing was, though, this, these are huge theaters, and we had to well, not theaters, stadiums. We had to go on at eight, and we had to be off at eight thirty. And we even had a band, by the way. It wasn't just the two of us as an acoustic duo. Okay. And but the lights were still on in these huge places. There were thousands of people already in there. But thousands more were still filing in, you know, finding their seats and stuff. So it was just crazy. I don't think, and they were so far away, too, most of them. And our, we're not theatrical. We don't jump around the stage. We're folk singers. <laughs> so I don't think a lot of those people ever even realized that there were live human beings on the stage, <laughs> except for the ones shooting Roman candles and, thro and throwing lit... Uh, railroad flares and sparklers and stuff like that it was chaos every night 28 cities in a row it was it was nuts goodness i believe you also opened we, got, we did get paid though oh good <laughs> i believe you opened for, for black sabbath at one point too is that right yes that's another one that stands out in my memory it was that... in chicago in the chicago stockyards coliseum and peter frampton was still with him and we opened for for oh no i'm sorry i was thinking of uh well, who was Peter Frampton? Uh, Humble Pie. Remember. Humble Pie, there yeah. you go. There was another one. Yeah, the <laughs> only time in our entire careers we were booed off stage. <laughs> we were just the wrong opening act for Humble Pie and the mood of the audience. So we left the stage. Well, we, we no sooner get back to the dressing room, and the promoter comes out looking at his watch going, well, you guys haven't played long enough. you got to go back out there. And he forced us to go back out 
and we had to go back out and I literally ran to the microphone <laughs> and, and asked the audience please you know we're being forced to do this we're not taking an encore uh, you know we know you don't like us you know we have to do one more song don't throw any beer bottles or anything else <laughs> so they let us do one more song and uh, we split but the other one Black Sabbath was in Cleveland Ohio I remember that one too yeah that was that was crazy a lot of fireworks that night too <laughs> Our, uh, our road manager, who was down by the soundboard, had a cherry bomb go off about four feet away from his head, so he couldn't hear very well for a couple of days. I can imagine that would be a, a real tough audience for a couple of folkies to, to win over. Yeah, I, we always refer to that as creative booking. You know, <laughs> we never could figure out what were they thinking. Thank you very much. That song was from an album we did one time called Weeds. Sort of a planned collector's item, I think. But while we're doing, uh, we'd like to do another song from that album. This is a song about our very favorite subject. That's why we like singing. Dirty books. Dirty books.
you very much.